Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Kay Boyle, founder and CEO of Banjo Robinson. Banjo Robinson is a magical cat that writes personalized letters, which turns reading, writing, and learning about the world into a magical game for five to eight-year-olds. Previously, Kate worked at William Morris and in screenwriting and script development. Banjo Robinson graduated London Tech Stars Accelerator fall 2019 and recently raised a pre-seed round led by Collaborative Fund and Sesame Ventures. I found out about Kate Boyle and this magical cat Banjo Robinson through Eamon Carey, who, if you listen to his episode, talks about his excitement for the company. I knew due to his enthusiasm, I had to get Kate on this show, and I'm so happy I did, cause as there's so many insights and learnings from her unique story and from a founder's perspective. So thank you so much again for the intro, Amen. and without further ado, here's Kate. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. No, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know this is a very, very busy period for you and Banjo Robinson. So tell me a little bit about your background and story and how did you how you ended up founding Banjo Robinson? How did I find my way to founding Banjo Robinson? I think look, when I was when I was growing up, my dad would write me letters and he would leave them around the house for me to find. And I really loved them, you know, and you know, if my house was on fire, those are the first things I'd grab, you know, so they were um, meaningful, they didn't cost any money, they they have value still do to this day. And it was actually a kind of an incidental way that I began to love reading and writing. I went on to work um, in film and script development. I moved to Los Angeles. I worked at William Morris, um, worked for a very talented screenwriter called Eitan Cohen um, on lots of studio movies. And, and when you do a studio movie with a massive budget, like a $200 million movie, it's as much about business and politics as it is, you know, art, uh, arguably more so. So it was a really nice hybrid experience of art, script, story, structure, pacing, all that stuff, characters and uh, consistency, but also business, money, uh, personalities, diplomacy and all that stuff. So a really great experience that uh, meant that when I came back to the UK, um, I had been writing letters for my friend's children. They were having children while I was out in America. I found that the children's, I really was enjoying the short format. So after uh, eight years of working on screenplays, uh, sort of 400 odd drafts of one screenplay, three-year development process. It was really nice to be able to pen a letter and see, um, you know, make a child really happy and to receive, you know, the next day or a couple of days later a reply from the child. And I think what what was um, interesting to, uh, as a sort of a business concept was that, you know, children really don't necessarily love reading or writing, or you might have a reluctant reader and writer who actually, in at Christmas in December, loves writing to Father Christmas. And that's great, but it's seasonal. And what we do at Banjo Robinson is he's a cat that travels all around the world and is constantly encouraging children to write back. And 90% and, uh, of the children that we uh, write to will write a reply to Banjo. So it's fun for the child, but it's educational as well. And so all of my background sort of fed into short formats, uh, letters, <laughs> um, but with story and, a, and a, an element of sort of magic. I love how your your career thus far has really come, it seems, full circle 
from when you were a kid receiving letters from your dad and you know really cherishing those as you said those were the if your house burned down those would be the first things that you take and now you're almost paying it forward about about writing letters to to children yeah and i think that they like what's nice is that the letters aren't for me they're from a magical character that you know children they have this sort of pre-rational phase where they really enjoy you know i mean they don't they don't like monsters under their bed but they will very happily and quickly take to the notion of a, of a tooth fairy or a father christmas and they do so with banjo robinson he seems quite funny and charismatic and that's definitely a really reward for for the team over here it's really rewarding to see how engaged fun and uh, happy it makes the children yeah it's really lovely yeah that's 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 really cool i talk with um investors in prior episodes on this show about you know when there isn't a lot of data in a business and they're still in their early stages they believe that founders of the companies that they invest in are the only people people that are uniquely qualified to found those companies. What makes you uniquely qualified and your superpowers uh, for starting this business? It's definitely about passion. Look, you know, I live and breathe Banjo Robinson and, you know, I really couldn't imagine a person, I think founders always feel this way, that they're incredibly invested. Uh, they are passionate about what they're doing and they're uniquely empowered to execute. So, you know, as I say, this is a combination of my not just my interests but my strengths and my background um living abroad uh, understanding the american market spending some time in venice with a bunch of startups and uh coming to london entering tech stars uh, learning from the people here and my experience in film was very much as i said about sort of watching the the people stuff the the diplomacy and the politics of getting a movie made as much as the story and the structure and Definitely sitting in writers' rooms helps you uh, kind of learn the nuts and bolts of putting story together. Being the age I am, being surrounded by lots of children and godchildren, of course, it just means that my interests are completely aligned with the business interests and that making them happy means making customers happy. Um, it's a nice double bar incentive as well that the children love it, but the parents are also enjoying that it's educational. So it's, um, you know, it's it's got something about it that, is more than just a big win in terms of uh, more than just money or additional revenue from merchandise and licensing or film and TV rights and book publishing, all of which I have experience of, but it's also about some doing some good in the world. It's obviously for me very motivating. So I think it's a combination of tenacity, uh, passion, obsession, if you call it that, curiosity. Um, I'm a generalist, so I'm interested in everything. And I've started a business which is about everything, every country in the world, every person in the world, every animal in the world, every banjo sort of talking about um, literacy, history, geography, language, empathy, because he writes in first person. It's a, it's a real um, catch-all. So it needed somebody who was as interested in the story as the business, as uh, being disruptive, as you know, uh, somebody who's passionate about the market, the child, the parent, the territories. A short answer to that question, I think it's a combination of tenacity, curiosity, um, obsession with your business, um, obviously intelligence, being able to put a team together, being able to evidence that you have the right team, even without a lot of data, you can say, you know, this person has done this, has a track record. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, experience um, living abroad is always incredibly helpful. You sort of, it puts you behind to start with and then uh, puts you ahead, I think, in the long term. So, you know, when I moved to America, I was behind all my peers I wasn't familiar with the process of LA of how deals were made of, of how you get traction I didn't know anybody um, I was you know I took a, a pay cut and a, and a job uh, demotion in order to get that visa and move over there and I uh, you know it was definitely tough but then what you learn there in addition to what you knew from your home country kind of compounds later on and you end up with sort of a 
yeah, kind of a, a superpower of understanding two different markets, two different demographics. You've had input and influence from 10x people, probably 100x in LA because it's such a networking city. Um, and, and I think ultimately, like you've just got to be obsessed with your business. And, and if you personify or if you really embody the, both the product and the vision of the company, that's usually evident in a conversation. And I think, you know, it's very sweet of him, but Eamon, who invested in us, said that, you know, he knew straight away <laughs> that it was something he wants to invest in. And I think that testament to good investors really kind of looking for founder fit and prioritizing that in the early stage where there isn't data to back up their vision. I think you touched on a lot of great points, tenacity, passion. And I think that with tenacity and passion comes grit. You obviously have the experience to do it. You know, you've, you've worked in script writing, you write letters to children, but you've also been on the receiving end of that, right? When you were a little girl from your father. And so the fact that you've seen how much joy that, that brought you as a child, those letters from your father, that you understand that, all right, there is something here to bring joy to children. Yeah, and any parent who sees their child write to Father Christmas gets it. It's just that that particular process is so short-lived. And it's such a missed opportunity because it turns writing into, which is something obviously educational, but it just turns it into a game so nobody notices. And that's what, yeah, it's just a lovely aspect of the thing. You're taking that and you're turning it into a year-round thing where, where children aren't just writing once a year, but they're but they're obviously improving on themselves. Um, not only that, but they're they're really excited to, you know, receive their letters from from Banjo. That's that, that's simply terrific. From a from a business point of view, I think there were a couple of things that were disruptive and that helped us raise. So one is that there isn't, um, you know, a character out there. Um, actually, there is one. It's a, a Christmas character, which uh, magical and make believe. So obviously, there's Paw Patrol and Octonauts, and there are characters on TV. But this is a character that children form an emotional bond with. They become very. He's their friend. They write to him. They get a letter from him. They will call their grandmother in Australia and rave about the fact that a cat has written to them. He's. Uh, it's a very emotional. Uh, it's like almost like a confidant that they that they write to. Um, and there isn't another children's brand that's uh, doing that. The other thing that we're doing is that the letters are reciprocal. So parents are able to edit the next letter that the child receives. So if a child asks Banjo a question, they write a letter to him saying, you know, do cats have birthday parties? The reply to that letter might be, yes, we do have birthday parties, but it's the parent who can add that on. So uh, the child writes their reply. Uh, to Banjo, post it underneath the sofa before they go to bed. Overnight, it's magically collected by Banjo. And then two weeks later, a letter arrives from Argentina or Chile or the Great Wall of China or Finland um, with the content that we've written or that a children's writer through us has written. And the end of it is a PS message that the parent can edit saying, yes, we do have birthday parties. And, you know, and I saw your grandmother in Australia and, you know, keep up the good work. I heard on the cat vine, you're doing your piano practice is going really well. And so there's this really nice disruptive element where you've got personalized children's literature, but on a subscription basis. And I think that was one of the reasons that fundraising was quite easy for us, because obviously a subscription business model is the Holy Grail, and you, uh, you know, we're not sitting on 40,000 units of stock. We're not uh, spending a year developing a book. We have a children's writer pen a letter in an afternoon. Um, each one is from a different country. And then, you know, a couple of days later, we print it on a piece of A4 paper and it goes out to a child. So it's, I suppose there were two elements, preempt some of your questions there. There were two elements that helped us a lot, that we were doing two different things that were new. If you don't mind, uh, can we actually just, I, I know we're going a little off script here, but do you mind if we dive in a little bit to your supply chain? I hope that no children, none of 
of your uh, intended audience and children are uh, are listening. But I would love to know how you get uh, what the process is. I know they they write twice a month. Is that on certain days, or how do you deliver the postage? And you know who actually writes the letters and all about that. So Banjo um, sends letters from all around the world. He sends letters twice a month, um, each one from a different country. Uh, so Indonesia, Iceland, uh, the Taj Mahal, the Great Wall of China. Each uh, pack is, it arrives, you get an airmail letter through your door um, with personalized content inside uh, addressed to the child uh, where you'll learn a little bit about the country and the animals he's met, the adventures he's had. Um, and some jokes and activities to keep them busy. We try to time them so that they are in the UK, they arrive on a Saturday morning. So uh, we have a print fulfillment house up in Nottingham, which prints and distributes. Um, but we post all over the world. So we've got children in South America, got, uh, a couple of children in Japan, <laughs> Scandinavia, continental Europe. And so uh, we post everywhere. And when we scale, obviously, we will be printing and distributing in the countries where you know it makes sense to do so. so um, we'll be doing some tests in America in Q1 of next year. How did you start? Did you, as a case study, did you use the letters that you were writing to your godchildren and friends that have children? Is that, and then you slowly just developed it? Uh, was it kind of word of mouth or what was what was kind of like those early stages of growth? Yeah, it was really interesting. So I was in a as an odd position. I came back from America knowing really only that I didn't want to do long format creative work anymore. Um, so I was hanging out in bookshops a lot and, and quite influenced by reading a lot of um, buying children's books for friends and writing some children's books and writing these letters. Um, and from that, I, as, I, as you said, you know, I started writing letters to, uh, or I was continuing the process of writing letters to um, friends' children. And then I did a little pilot study just from my kitchen table. I started, you know, reaching out to friends, friends' friends. So, you know, one degree of separation. So I didn't know I didn't I didn't want to know every parent I wanted there to be some sort of feedback that was not too close and not too loving <laughs> and the children and those parents reacted the same way you know my friends and their children did uh, they you know they started writing back and I would get pictures and, and letters to my home um, from children very very sweet and feedback from parents saying you know my child is a reluctant reader but and writer but she stayed up really late writing to you it's the most I've ever seen her write in my life she hasn't picked up a pen all summer but she's you know written he went to Japan at one point and she learned what a haiku poem was and she went from not writing to writing haiku poetry so really really sweet and then I took the idea to a friend of mine who had uh, Richard Moros who's the founder of Moo Business Cards, who I went to university with, and I told him the idea, really sort of wanting to pick his brains about print fulfillment and um, processes of, you know, how how he had started out, kind of what the next step might be. And he said, this is crazy. Do not do a kitchen table business. This is something that you want a bit of money behind. Um, he introduced me to a few different people. One of the people he introduced me to is uh, the head of a VC fund um, in London. And it, I was so green. I, I really had no idea what that meant. I think, you know, I think I, when I went along to the meeting, I was Googling like, what is a dividend? <laughs> you know, what does VC stand for? You know, like, uh, you know, I just absolutely had no idea. And I think before the meeting was set, he wrote and said, you know, what stage are you at? Because you're know, very happy to meet you, but we write checks, you know, between two and 6 million. We focus on sort of series A or big seed or whatever. Um, and I was like, 
you know, I'm, you know, I've got, I've got an idea, but I'll take two or six million. You know, that sounds great. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no problem. That's, that sounds like a good number. So of course I went in, he was such a lovely man. This is, I don't know if I should mention names, but yeah, yeah Simon Calver at BGF was incredibly kind. And he said, look, you're much too early. This is how things work. <laughs> you're much too early for series A. You, you don't have a product or a team, but uh, he was really passionate about the product and the idea. And I think the vision of where I wanted to take it, which was beyond a subscription business into a brand with you know English language learning um you know options in Scandinavia and South America and Asia and uh, you know classroom version and product merchandise licensing all that stuff and so he very kindly invested a little bit of his personal funds as did Richard Moros at me and they very uh, generously said that I could mention their names and introduce me to a couple of people and I ended up doing a friends and family raise through contacts that you know those uh, gentlemen very kindly put me in touch with. So it was it was a definitely a kind of kitchen table start. And actually, I was on I was on a government scheme called the New Enterprise Allowance, which is about sixty five quid a week. You know, which is pretty tough to live on. And I was doing that for about a year. So I spent a long time just sort of getting to grips with a couple of different distributors, fulfillment houses, some partnership opportunities, really not knowing anything about anything. I, you know, followed up a lot of leads that went nowhere and a ton of leads that went, that led me to, to, to where I am today. And it was fantastic actually to have that grant, which just allowed me to follow every lead, every opportunity, uh, learn in every, I did all face-to-face meetings, which I highly recommend, um, both for, for investors and founders. There's something that you get from a face-to-face meeting that just doesn't come over through you know a zoom call as much as zoom is fantastic uh, video calls are fantastic there's a there's a relationship that is built through in-person meetings and you know I had the time to meet people like Richard and Simon and take their advice they were generous enough to give me time and 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 advice uh, and have, have stuck with me and and carried on doing so so and I think those relationships obviously brought about other relationships that you know has has escalated to getting into the Techstars you know being one of the 10 companies in 2019 Techstars program we were recommended to the program I was really in the right mix at the right time with the right idea and uh, people were incredibly generous to help and I just have an attitude of wanting to learn I was very aware of how much I didn't know and even you know the unknown I known would keep me up at night I don't even know what I don't know (laughs) so um there was a there was um there was just a real period of learning and um I think the idea and my passion for it really helped us get to where we are now so through those connections I met other investors we raised a friends and family round and then um we were recommended to the MD of Techstars in London and we were one of the 10 companies that was chosen. And I think that you alluded to it. Obviously, there's things in every business and every founder where they have their superpowers and then they also have their areas of weakness. And I wanted to know what you believe maybe your areas of weaknesses are that maybe you're, you're, you're working on or that or, and how you think about hiring for your areas of weakness as well. It's amazing. There's two things that in my fundraising, I wasn't asked. I wasn't asked my weaknesses, which seems such an obvious thing to ask somebody who you're about to give money to. 
And the other thing I wasn't asked <laughs> was um, not many people wanted to read the letters, you know, the, the content, the product that we put out. Um, there, were, there were a few investors that sort of wanted to know that they were interested in the brand. I think, look, the, the first thing that springs to mind is with passion and, you know, founder fit comes sort of a level of obsession that makes for a pretty poor work-life balance. And obviously over time that leads to burnout. And so that's something that, you know, all, all the companies in textiles are, you know, we're conscious of and some mentoring and advice around how to kind of create work-life balance but it's definitely something that is not you know you don't go into starting your own company and under the delusion that it will create loads of space in your life for you to travel and be relaxed and you know all the things that you know ultimately people want to do with their riches and their success so look it takes a toll and so it's definitely something to watch out for particularly if somebody's been doing it on their own and doesn't have a co-founder has been at it you know like you know it was incredible I mentioned the grant that I was given the government new enterprise allowance grant uh, you know financial help in the early days and I absolutely couldn't be where I'm, I couldn't have done what I've done and I couldn't be where I am without that so I don't mean to sound in any way critical of that program it was the best thing that could have happened to us but it's very hard to live on 65 pounds a week and start a company and I think you know that can take a toll as well so it's not necessarily a personality weakness but the circumstances of starting a company obviously are really hard and you've you, you've got to kind of I think as an investor I would be looking or as a yeah as an investor I would be looking to make sure that that there is, <laughs> that the person I'm investing in not only has the vision and the skills and expertise and passion um, and is solving a real problem, I'd also be looking to make sure that they have the sort of mental toughness to get through what is essentially a tsunami of problems that you have to solve <laughs> every day um, and, and do so with a kind of a can-do spirit. So I think my weakness is the same as every founder's weakness is, is that that obsession and passion translates to a poor work-life balance and you know over time you just got to be aware to uh, not let that take a toll so so how do you think about complementary skills amongst the founding team and and hiring well it's funny that Eamon mentioned that our meeting became a long meeting because that that was a real pattern for a while so every time I would do a meeting with someone there was so much to kind of unpick and so much potential in in the idea of Banjo that all of those meetings turned into five-hour a lot of the, okay, I can tell you at least five of them turned into five hour meetings and two of the people I'm with now both were one hour meetings to assess them for, you know, suitability for coming on board uh, as COO and CMO and both of them turned into five hour meetings. One was a mentor of mine in a, an incubator that I was in, which does a lot of social impact work um, in East London, Alia. Um, and he came on board as a marketing uh, kind of guru and within a few minutes I'd asked him what his plan was sort of thinking oh he's probably looking to move from corporate to a startup in a kind of marketing role and you know I like the cut of his jib I reckon that's <laughs> I reckon he's a good fit and yeah and within an hour we had gone to lunch and I'd offered him a job and we sat and we talked over lunch and then it was another three hours of, of sort of assessing Obviously, the passion was there and it was mutual that, you know, we both felt the same way about the project. And, you know, look, I'm not a marketer. So, you know, I was just plying him with questions and trying to understand. And I'm, I'm pretty good at arguing. So I've, I've got sort of got a, a counter for everything that's offered. And, and through countering, I was not only annoying him, but also understanding where he was coming from and challenging him. And I think that happened a few times. There was another guy, our COO 
went to meet him for an hour. We were introduced by the, the managing director of um, Techstars in Berlin, uh, Connor Murphy, and um, he, yeah, again, immediately, I knew he was, uh, I knew he was um, somebody I wanted to bring on board. Uh, we sat and we talked for hours. I, he was considering an offer somewhere else uh, that had just closed a Series B. And I think, I don't know if he was playing hard to get, but either way I had to, I kind of got, I brought in some big guns and got him to um, meet some influential and heavyweight investors and uh, had them do a job on him and uh, <laughs> managed to kind of get him on board. He was really passionate, but he, he um, yeah, he had to, he had to forego a bigger salary. So did a bit of um, negotiations there. In answer to how did I choose the people, it was a case of having done it so long on my own, I really understood the business. I really understood what, what was working and what wasn't, what was needed um, and where the gaps were. And, you know, I, I knew that somebody quite experienced, uh, some, somebody with marketing background and somebody, um, a real sort of machine executor for a CEO ops person, you know, were like the two first hires that I needed to make. You want to hire people that are that actually specialize in specific areas that you know, hey, marketing, maybe I know 50% of what I need to do, but I want to hire somebody that knows everything about marketing. Yeah, and then but I think also, you know, what we've done, we've really I really understood early on somebody said I think maybe Rich and Moros said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think when I first heard it, it meant absolutely nothing to me. And I remember like repeating the words and like almost like visualizing breakfast and visualizing what culture is and, and getting almost sort of no information out of that analogy whatsoever. Cut to where we are now, we hire for culture first and then experience. And what we also have been very lucky with is to get people with specialist experience but who are also generous in their curiosity you know uh, John has tr traveled and lived abroad in Panama Brian's moved countries like I have you know we're all curious individuals about kind of everything you know so yeah I think you know it's it's um hiring for culture hiring for expertise but also in a core founding team or in early employees you you're looking for generalists as well because we're all doing six different jobs you lived in America for eight years you understand the American market obviously you're based in London I'd imagine that you understand the Europe in general as as their different markets and countries but how did you think about growth geographically it's interesting I mean one of the things that's brilliant about textiles is you meet uh, um, like 160 people over the course of the program so you, you get a you know there's a thing called mentor madness there's a three-week period where you meet 90 different mentors nine a day every other day for three weeks so you get a lot of opinions about growth and and you get your hypotheses challenged and there's a lot of whiplash but somewhere in there um, you find out of the 90 probably 80 are people that you've got real common ground with and and really connect with personally um, and then they all have their their expertise and they've all got opinions you you kind of filter it you you somehow over the next couple of weeks it all kind of comes into focus and you understand a new path which is a combination of what you wanted to do and and what you know uh, the advice of these sort of veteran entrepreneurs and founders and people who've exited investors specialists uh, come at you with so so 
I went in thinking that we would prove the model in the UK and then move to America uh, as soon as possible, but it was quite a vague plan. We're now much more kind of concrete on when we're going to America and how the routes to market there, the method of growth or you know, the growth engine is, is much more clear. And so, and, you know, and there were obviously sort of voices in our head saying go as soon as you can and then voices saying no prove yourself here first and then use that as a sort of a a case study to go over there with in the end we um were very lucky to in a kind of unusual turn of events we without any significant number of customers in america we ended up closing uh, american investment so collab plus sesame is a fund combination of uh, collaborative fund and sesame ventures they invested along with some silicon valley vcs and the rest was angels a, a mix of uh, syndicates in america and the uk and that's further affected you know that's further impacted the way that we think about moving to america so there are there's some research we're going to be doing um, in the states around whether sending literature children's literature to parents from disadvantaged socio socioeconomic backgrounds, whether little and often over the course of a year can affect a child's school readiness, it's called. So, you know, children who start school, school ready, can sit still for 10 minutes, they can hold a pen, they can write their name, they can, you know, hang their coat up. There's there's a sort of a, a level of concentration and lack of intimidation, you know, when you sit them down to read and write, that basically over time translates into better life happiness, uh, better results um, in their exams, better careers, better, you know, um, opportunities in life. And when children start school behind their peers, and um, I think a third of children do, and mostly from low socioeconomic backgrounds, that difference between children who are at a level of literacy that is appropriate for a five-year-old or a six-year-old, that compounds over the years and just means that those children have less opportunities in life all the way through. I think it, it translates to a two-point grade average by the time they're 16 and you know massively different career and uh, further education opportunities and potential so we're doing some research in america which hopefully will 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 allow us to do some good work to uh make an impact to understand the market as well and and understand uh how we can be more helpful and where we're being helpful and so that's all as a result of connections through our investment round so there's been you know it's been um you take on money and and it and of course it's the money is 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 super useful but you're also creating relationships with people with expertise so sesame ventures is owned by sesame workshop which owns the creators of sesame street so there's a huge wealth of experience at sesame workshop which founders of the sesame ventures portfolio companies are able to tap into so it's, it's just um influenced the way that we look at america yeah been a really exciting ride to get on you talking about that research it, it sounds like it's going to be or hopefully will be full of, of really valuable insights about uh, the world of education so are you right now just in the uk we're sending letters to children all over the world but we are swallowing the cost of that so when we're sort of we're following the um, model of uh, Moo Richard Moros so I think in the early days he did a deal with Flickr and they sent a, a bunch of um, Moo business cards to the premium Flickr users um, which was a fantastic very smart partnership because it meant that not only did the right relevant people who were interested in photography get marketed to, but they then used Flickr in order to find the photos that they would end up putting on their business cards. So it was super clever, but it meant that they went international pretty much from day one and we're looking to do the same thing. So we're spending our marketing money in one territory, but we are 
um, looking at organic growth in other territories. So, for example, we're doing you know US podcasts where we've been invited to do them, uh, but we're not spending money on that. <laughs> not just this one, but <laughs> family ones. You know, like um, parenting those kind of things we're international now day one um but we are focusing on marketing spend in one territory in order to kind of get some um more bang for our buck and and uh a better understanding of customers rather than diluting that understanding over the world so we are um taking we're swallowing the cost of postage to different territories so at the moment everyone's getting a very good deal we're sending to the u.s for the same cost as a second class stamp to the UK and to Japan. And uh, we have actually a, a new customer in the Middle East, which is a whole other thing. So they live in a country where there aren't post boxes and sort of, yeah, we're, we're out to the world and taking that cost on our, ourselves as a, as a company because we know how viral and how, how passionate children and parents are about the product. So, you know, we, we know and see that it speaks for itself and we're finding that wherever we send letters, you know, we get shortly after one arrives, we get a few more orders in that in that pocket in that town. So we are spending our money in one territory and um, learning lessons from all. I really really like that growth strategy of talking on podcasts. Yeah, and we're also hosting a, a podcast which will be coming out next year. It's called Things My Parents Did Right. It's going to be short format growth hacks. Sorry, uh, parent parenting hacks for for parents. So. It's a corruption. There was a, a children's book called um, They Tuck You Up Your Mum and Dad, and it's a corruption of the Philip Larkin poem, They Fuck You Up Your Mum and Dad. Um, and we wanted just to be, Banjo is quite positive, and we wanted to show, you know, we're going to be interviewing, uh, we have been interviewing as well, some um, comedians and uh, people in the sort of family space talking about things their parents actually did right. <laughs> um, and obviously the comedy in there is obviously all the things their parents did wrong and, and all the things that went wrong. But at the end, there's always a, okay, tell me some things your parents did right. And then hopefully that will be useful for, for parents. So what we found is that um, some of the influencers and um, bloggers and vloggers from our space uh, will are very, very keen to um, talk and share their experiences. And that's, that's a wonderful way of attracting um customers uh, from their following and vice versa. Wow, that's so inventive. I love it. How did you think about fundraising and VC in terms of what was your due diligence process? Yeah, I mean, it was extensive. We had a lot of interest in Banjo um, and we had a lot of people coming at us with really attractive valuations and, you know, equity uh, equity offers. We obviously spoke with all the founders that we could through um, introductions by the by the VCs. But in a sense, that's like checking out references. Like, of, you know, of course, the, <laughs> the references are always going to say great things about the, the funds. One of the amazing things about Techstars is that it just taps you into this absolutely huge network of um, people. So we were able to ask around and ask for people's experiences of working with those funds, of being funded by those funds, of doing deals with those funds, of co-funding with those funds. And then, you know, a huge amount of it was the people themselves. So not just the fund, uh, particularly with collaborative fund, we absolutely love their um, ethos of, you know, what's good for a consumer, for me, for you, is, you know, should not be considered at odds with what's good with the world and 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 rather you know if we look at that overlap of what's good for us and what's good for the world that's where they invest and that's you know absolutely our, our thinking behind banjo is that you know i i was always an inventor i always had i was i used to call myself like an, an ideas factory i had too many ideas i couldn't execute on them and it was such a sort of an eternal frustration that i had all these ideas that i couldn't move on them all. And, and another frustration was that I wanted to move, dedicate my 
time to something that was both lucrative and had potential to scope and scale, but also which did good in the world. And I could sleep at night about and feel good about. And that's exactly, you know, what collaborative funder about is, is that sort of that sweet spot between lucrative and scalable and interesting and disruptive and not fucking the world up, you know, not make, not making crap that the world doesn't need and, you know, or rather making stuff that is uh, beneficial and um, helps the world. And so absolutely huge big part of the decision was that. And, you know, I grew up on Sesame Street. So to work with a fund, which is, albeit in a very tenuous way connected through Sesame Workshop and Sesame Ventures is um, is an absolute thrill because, you know, like basically wanted to do a deal with the Cookie Monster since I was five, you know. <laughs> it's a deal that, you know, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> the Sesame Workshop is was the original disruptor, right? It's, uh, it's founders or, or, or the, the creators of Sesame Street at Sesame Workshop were... Um, super aware of how addictive TV is and they said how can we use this addictive power for good why don't we try and educate children through the TV and so they you know for um, decades now have you know worked out a way to do that with grace and um, teaching not just ABCs and one two threes but empathy and kindness and friendship and you know obviously Sesame Street is not Sesame uh, workshop is not uh, Sesame Ventures, but but that kind of flavor of ethics and kindness and wanting to do something good in the world is a real through line for from not just our, our big VC investors, but our angels as well. There's absolutely not a single investor on our cap table that I wouldn't happily go to dinner with and have a really interesting conversation with and, and feel very much like we were on the same page in terms of where we think this brand can, do, can go and what we think this brand can do, both in terms of finance and, and good. Um, I probably sound really idealistic, but it's the truth that we just, we were able to pick and choose people that we really liked. And then the last thing is that, you know, we met early on Lauren Loktev um, and later Taylor Green at Collaborative Fund, and we just really loved our conversation. So Lauren was immediately passionate and enthusiastic and full of smiles and our calls were and another thing and another thing and we could do this and we could do this and what about this and oh my goodness this is great and you know and you just know it's just obvious you know just obviously get it and uh are on the same page and then that's that's continued we really love um working with taylor as well lauren um ultimately the 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 relationship and the calls with um the individuals at the fund is again super super important so yeah due diligence asking your network your instinct and uh you know people's enthusiasm for um asking questions as well obviously like you know in the same way that they're asking you questions founders i would say if i was an investor and a founder wasn't uh, you know interviewing me or wasn't asking me questions about what i you know just basic stuff like what what does this look like if it's successful and you know what what would you do under these circumstances you know what's what do you think the opportunity is here what are you passionate about if if both parties aren't asking each other those questions i i, I sort of always wonder what's going on brought up some excellent points making sure that you ask questions and do your own due diligence and not even talk to maybe the companies that that the investors has backed that has given great references about the investors but those companies that haven't actually maybe worked out as you talked about it immensely you know there's always problems along the way it's very very hard to do 
No, look, absolutely. Sorry, Yenon, you're absolutely right. And uh, I'm embarrassed that I didn't say it. Like, look, the first question you, um, sorry, the, one of the most interesting questions you can ask is, absolutely every, com every company has uh, stuff go wrong and things don't go to plan. And um, what do you do? What do you do as a founder? What do you do as a, a VC? What do you do as an investor, as an angel? Things go wrong all the time. And then there are companies that don't work out. And, the, and both those scenarios happen. And you want to understand, you know, when the ship is righted and the course is corrected, how that happened. And you also want to understand what went wrong in cases where the course couldn't be corrected and the company, you know, didn't go on to raise another round and you want to see sort of how everybody behaved in those circumstances because they part of the process that we're all going to have problems and you know things aren't always going to be easy absolutely what's one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally and one that has impacted you professionally oh my goodness this i wish i'd prepared okay dr zeus both <laughs> It really kind of sets the bar, particularly um, particularly the Lorax, which is a kind of a very early comment on where society's going. There's a there's a you're not familiar with it. It's about this creature that sort of goes down the wrong path and uh, is greedy and capitalist. And not that those two things are necessarily the same, but he he is very much greedy and capitalist. He creates this thing called a thneed, and the idea is that it's a thing that you need, but it's a, a completely nonsense item. Nobody needs it, and he makes these at the expense of a forest. And it's a sort of one of the early, very early commentaries on you know excessive consumption, consumerism. And it's not for that that I loved it. It's the the poetry and the 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 humor and the the sort of um, wordplay is absolutely first class obviously and and it doesn't really get better than Dr. Zeus so so I think but the combination of that with um, a message that was both early and impactful and beautifully made and you know I love I love fantastic words um, I love color and positivity and optimism and kind of colorful language not in a not in a swearing kind of way but language that sings you know on the page and um so i think that is definitely kind of very high bar that we are trying to um get to with the quality of our writing and and something that sort of i'm passionate about in terms of um providing uh great literature and sharing great literature with children i think that they deserve the best and dr zeus is the best and then professionally obviously i started out with the lean startup so nothing very radical or disruptive there everybody reads it i think look it really resonated it wasn't just that it was recommended by lots of people that i respect or that it was the sort of the first one that everyone gets recommended to read it's just that it resonated because it makes a lot of sense it uh it's I think one of the things that they are discovering uh, works, or one, one of the things that the, there was a study I was reading recently about founders that are in their 30s and 40s and, and their success being correlated, that, that the success of a founder correlates with their age so that they, you know, the older you are, the, the more experience, the more understandings, the more insights, probably the more contacts and the more um, confidence as well, the more successful. And um, I think that about you know coming to this in my late 30s and having seen the lessons of the lean startup kind of in action in businesses and and workplaces seeing where it was done and it worked seeing where it wasn't done and you know the consequences of that 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 made those lessons really resonate but and there's a ton of them traction and legacy which is the story of how the All Blacks focus on culture as much as sort of skill and expertise. So the, the, the 
rugby players uh, of uh, New Zealand, the All Blacks, you know, it's a, it's a real lesson in teamwork and how um, there's the five dysfunctions of a team, which is actually quite a good book on that subject as well. But yeah, legacy is, I think legacy is the, is the winner for me. It's, it, it kind of, yeah, I've just seen, I've just seen the thing about the age was just to say that, you know, I think then when you have a bit of perspective, you can sort of see the truth in these books and it becomes less a sort of a, less of an abstract, oh yeah, that makes sense. And more of a kind of emotional, oh fuck, I really remember when that <laughs> wasn't done <laughs> and it didn't work out or, you know, there's a real sort of recognition of the, of the, um, the lessons that are being taught in those books. And I think that if you have a bit of experience under your belt, you, you they really kind of, um, ring true and I think legacy for me the lean startup Dr. Zeus and my those are my three I love it I love it those are all great I also loved how you're able to work in some rugby there I'm a huge fan you've given such wonderful insights but if you had to give one piece of advice to consumer companies or those looking to fundraise that have a venture backable business what would it be for fundraising my advice would be to do your research to really work out who is worth spending time with and on to look at the the uh, different companies and to obviously look these meetings you'll do so many meetings and you will invest so much time away from the running of your business uh, there's absolutely it's it's sort of madness to do that with a company that you haven't done your research on and that just isn't a fit you know from the get-go so it sounds very very obvious but even with inbound interest as well um, just uh, just focus on the ones that are that make sense, you know, not just from a money perspective, but from a kind of common ground, uh, common vision, common areas of interest, common grounds of uh, common areas of impact, potential impact. Um, do your research. Keep absolutely every touch point in an Excel document so that you can understand where you are are at with all those meetings. Recommend face-to-face -face meetings where at all possible. I think that um, it's not going to affect the amount you raise or the valuation or probably the decision of the, the partner at the VC fund, but it definitely gives you your best uh, shot of connecting with somebody. So uh, where you can do in-person meetings. And I think, you know, vice versa for the investor as well. It's uh, you're getting a better read of the, of the character of the person. I think that's excellent advice. I think documenting and knowing the touch points, I think that's that's great. Well, Kate, this has been an absolute pleasure. I really, really enjoy learning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Kate on the show, and I really appreciate her sharing the story of Banjo and how it seems like it's come full circle. I didn't see that Kate had a Twitter, but if you'd like to follow Banjo Robinson, you can at Banjo underscore Robinson underscore. That'll also be located in the show notes. Thank you again, Eamon, for introducing me to Kate. If you're enjoying this podcast, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app, as that helps other folks find the show. If you're a founder and working on something innovative or have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and until next time.